the second episode of the Gailey Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Dorner. And I'm your co-host, Alex Myers. This week, we're talking to Scott Hamilton. Being the executive director of the Oklahoma Democratic Party, Scott knows a little something about the importance of elections. And yes, you guessed it. We're talking about our recent primary and the November elections with him today. So without further ado, let's jump right into it. For those who don't know you, can you give us an elevator pitch about what you do for a living? Sure. I am the executive director of the Oklahoma Democratic Party, uh, which means I'm responsible for all staff efforts of the party and supporting candidates throughout the state, as well as elected officials in the party. So it's an exciting, very exciting job. Um, and I, I love the work. It's very challenging. Uh, but I'm, I'm no stranger to challenging tasks, and that's where I, I thrive the most. And you must have definitely been pretty busy with the recent Democratic primaries. Are you surprised by any of the results? Um, not, not, not terribly. Obviously, the biggest surprise was the 802 question, the fact that it only passed by one percentage point. And, you know, there was a lot of talk in the press about how rural Oklahomans voted against their own best interests. But the, the piece of that equation that was left out is those are the folks who were hit hardest with the negative ads, uh, ads that were full of lies, things like, do you really want Pelosi in charge of your health care and that, that kind of thing. Um, so they, they didn't vote against their own best interests. I think if anything, they, they thought they were doing the right thing. I'm just grateful that it passed. I'm also grateful for the turnout. We have been pushing vote by mail all year, uh, but certainly at the start of COVID, we encouraged everyone to get their absentee ballots. And the number of people that voted that way, it was, it was very encouraging. A lot of first time voters were able to vote that way this time. And why do you think uh, voting by mail has been such a controversial issue during this election cycle? It's interesting. It's an interesting question. I, it's only controversial for the administration for some reason. Um, the president, the vice president, they vote by mail, and yet they don't think that we are responsible enough to do that. Um, the incident of voter fraud all, all of the research shows that it's no greater with absentee voting than it is with in-person voting. It's, it's minuscule. Um, the Republican Party has a history of making voting a challenge for people. Uh, in Oklahoma, to, had it not been for one provision, um, people still would have had to get their absentee ballots notarized, which defeats the purpose of, of, of being able to vote remotely uh, from, from home where you feel safe. This time they were able to do so with a photocopy of an ID. But the Oklahoma Democratic Party is suing the state election board, um, saying that, that, that this is nothing more than voter interference. Um, and and it, it really does pose a barrier to people uh, who should be able to vote without the necessity of 
a notary. And Oklahoma law says that notaries can only notarize 20 ballots per election. Oh, dear. Yeah. So you see, you see how it's just one roadblock after another. So Alex, to, to address your question head on, I don't think it is controversial so much as it is just another scare tactic of this administration. And um, going on some of the key Democratic players in o Oklahoma, what are some key issues that you think they'll be bringing up in their campaigns that are going up until November? I think that some of the things that, that affect Oklahomans the most right now uh, are economic issues and tied to that, of course, uh, is, is employment or unemployment, um, a living wage. Now, that's something that we're not going to have in Oklahoma right away. I'm proud to say that the, the party staff, everyone who is on our staff is paid a living wage. Um, and honestly, that's not an easy thing to do uh, in the nonprofit world, and especially when you're such a, a minority in Oklahoma. But it's important. Um, that's something that's going to be addressed a lot. Also, the quality of education in, in Oklahoma. Uh, people are recognizing that it's fraught with challenges, that we still don't pay our teachers nearly enough. And so those are issues that are, are really going to climb to the top of the, of the talking list, I believe. And in general, why do you think there's not a livable minimum wage in Oklahoma? Greed. In, in a word, it's, it's greed. When you have um, someone like the Green family who, you know, can live 30,000 square foot home um, off of the backs of people who are making minimum wage, uh, there's, there's no reason for, for that kind of disparity. Um, but it's, it's that whole adage, I got mine, now you get yours however you can. And unfortunately, um, it, it, it's to, to make anything less than a living wage, which is considered $15 an hour, um, it, it would be very, very hard to make it as an individual in Oklahoma, uh, forgetting what it would be like to have a family trying to live on that amount of money. It would be just just devastating every month i would think trying to figure out which bills to pay and how you're going to do that and forgetting things like uh, what happens when when the hot water tank goes out you know there are big issues that happen to all of us but if it's replace the hot water tank or put food on the table those are hard decisions to make and again if we look at the, the income disparity, it's, it's amazing the wealth that exists in Oklahoma, uh, and it's also amazing the poverty that exists here. And it's that, that kind of disparity. You know, back to 802 for a moment, if I may, the, the people who voted against that in the highest numbers were wealthy suburbanites. They voted against it. So, they, they have great health care and easy access to health care, but they don't want other people to have it. And, and, and I, I hear so much about the Oklahoma standard, and I'm not here to bash Oklahoma. I, I grew up here. Um, but, but the Oklahoma standard is a bit of a myth. Um, it, it's not as embracing as we would like to think that it is. 
And it's time we, we knock out some of those old myths, the same way people are knocking down statues of Confederate soldiers. Um, it, it's time for us to just pull everything apart and not, not try to mend things, but really to start over in some aspects. And nothing could be truer than, than that being said of politics. Mm -hmm. You said there's also a lot of wealth and poverty in Oklahoma, but going to the wealth and, you know, families like the Greens, how do they influence politics in Oklahoma? Greatly, because their money speaks volumes. Uh, you know, they, they, they can afford to uh, fund any issue that they want to in, in, with, with a great amount of money. Uh, they're limited, as everyone else is, with how much individually they can contribute to a candidate. But in terms of, of issues or contributing to super PACs or creating their own super PAC, um, it's, it's wide open. And so they have a great deal of influence, uh, not just at the national level, but, but at the, at the Capitol, um, probably more so at the Capitol. Uh, because it's it's right here, and what what I think that a, a lot of Oklahomans don't understand is how little their voices are heard, and as a result, people just tend to back off and say, you know, it's it's out of my control. Well, what we're seeing now, is, especially with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, it, it, things are starting to change as a result of that because voices are being heard, they're being amplified, the message is strong, it's clear. And that's what I encourage people to do. That's what I've always encouraged people in the LGBTQ plus community to do is you've got to speak up. Now, I'm, I'm not talking about someone who's closeted because that's, that's a very private decision and uh, I, I would not want to jeopardize anyone's livelihood or, or their life, certainly. But if you're out and you have uh, the, the luxury of friends and community, uh, then, then you owe it to the rest of the community and certainly to yourself to speak up on political issues. And if we, if we could get all of the progressive folks in Oklahoma um, to all come together and vote one way, there, there is zero limit to what we could do. But unfortunately, that, that has yet to happen. I, I'm proud to say, though, the number of, of gay people that I've seen working with Black Lives Matter, who've been attending the rallies and marches, it has is, it is made my heart so happy. Uh, I was in Tulsa, uh, during 45's circus and um, was there for Juneteenth. And the number of, of white and brown and black people all coming together to celebrate Juneteenth was something that would have been unheard of when, when I was in school. Uh, so I am seeing some progress. And while it's been slow in many areas, uh, Robin, you can certainly attest to this. We've seen greater positive movement uh, in terms of LGBTQ rights in the last 10 years than we had in the rest of my lifetime put together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you have been there 
not just covering it as a journalist, but but being a part of the movement itself. And so the, I, I do see a ramping up. And of course, where anytime there's positive movement, there's going to be opposition. We're seeing that uh, again with the administration stripping trans folks uh, of rights, healthcare particularly, uh, making looking to make a change and not allowing openly LGBTQ people to serve in the military again. Um, so there, there is there is pushback. However, I, I, I believe that in the end, good wins, and um, that that's not a Pollyanna-ish view so much as it is one that that's, that's being borne out today. Um, when when I see communities who are not just angry at police, but want to figure out a way how to be supportive of police while they want the police to be supportive and appreciative and respectful of their community. That's dialogue, that's, that's open dialogue. And as Oklahomans, we're not good with that. And I think it goes back to the way the state was born. Um, you know, the, the, they opened the gate and here came everyone to establish their own little territory. Um, and, and in many ways, we're still very territorial. But again, I see that as changing. I see more open dialogue. Um, and I think it's up to those of us who have a hard time shutting up. And I'm, I'm speaking only for myself here. But we have to encourage other people to, to be involved in decisions that matter. Um, you know, I, I've heard people say, well, I don't have kids, so I really don't care uh, about a school board election. Well, you should care because those kids are going to be the ones who are coming to look for a job from you uh, or who are going to be either fixing your heart or fixing your car or whatever the case may be. But you need to have an investment in those children right now. And the best way to do that is to figure out the best people to serve on a local school board or a local city council or the mayor of a small town. These are all important issues that, that we all need to, to own and be a part of. So my question to that would be, you've mentioned issues like Black Lives Matter, income inequality, education reform. How specifically will the Democratic Party of Oklahoma help with these issues? Well, for one thing, we're, we're, we're raising the dialogue. We, we are um, standing in solidarity with groups. We, we had a press conference last week um, talking about the district attorney here in Oklahoma County, David Prater, and how he charged a whole bunch of young African-American people with some pretty substantial charges up to and including terrorism. Uh, and set their bail at a million dollars. Now, honestly, if you set my bail at $50,000, I'm gonna have to keep my butt in jail because I can't afford to get out. So nobody can afford to get out on a million dollar bail. Um, the, the charges were, were horrifying when you looked at them uh, and, and the degree to which bail was set uh, for these young people. At about the same time, there was a gay man in, in Edmond 
who was beaten unconscious by a couple as they screamed um, anti-gay slurs at him. The man literally was beaten unconscious. The couple uh, was cited for misdemeanor um, assault and sent home. So while they're home laughing about all of that, we've got a whole lot of black kids who are sitting in county jail right now. Um, and we called, we called him out on that, which is very unusual because David Prater is a Democrat. But I believe, and the party believes, that where there is injustice, no matter who it is that's doing it, we have a responsibility of speaking out against it. And so that's one of the ways, Alex, that, that we are uh, helping to raise consciousness about some of the important issues of our time. And are you certain that bringing awareness and having dialogue will necessarily produce results? I'm sorry, repeat the question? Does raising awareness about these issues that you mentioned, will that still change the matter? Will that change the results? Yeah, uh, provided that, that in our messaging, we include, you've got to vote. And, and I mean, Robin, you, you were never in the Cimarron Alliance Equality Center when you didn't see a stack of voter registration cards. Absolutely. And that, that's, that's, that is a strong, strong driving force for me. Uh, but, but Alex, that's a very good question because if, if all we do is raise dialogue and, and get people more aware, but we don't encourage them to vote, then all we've done is just had a conversation. And, and it can't stop with a conversation. And that's the Because side will get the conversation going and sway them the other way, is what I've seen. Yep. And I guess, I mean, we get all this conversation as I assume we're all registered Democrats. Um, you know, the man you brought up, the district attorney, is also a registered Democrat. And we, I feel like in our party, we have this divide between uh, more middle moderate Democrats and progressives. How do we go about rec reconciling the difference between that and within our own party? That, that's, a, that's a tough one to manage, I'll be honest with you, because um, people who are more progressive often tend to think that the party isn't progressive enough. And people who are more conservative Democrats tend to, to think that the party is way too progressive. So what we have to do is we, we've got to walk with a balance of, of those issues um, and help to identify those areas that we have in common. Uh, a lot of times the, the more conservative Democrats, those are issues around financial uh, responsibility. And that's something that even progressive folks can, can agree that we have to be fiscally responsible in order to provide health care for all people, good education, safe streets. Um, but but I, I, honestly, it, it is a tough line to, to walk because um, if, if you're one extreme or the other, it can be, it can be polarizing. Uh, and, and that's what we don't need. We don't need that kind of a division in the, in the state party. Um, any, any, one of the things that I have observed uh, as a gay man is that 
too often in minority groups, we tend to segregate within, within our own groups. We tend to square off with each other. And, and, and it's more of a microcosm of I've got mine, now you go get yours. Um, which the only thing I can attribute that to is that some of us have been oppressed for so long. Um, it, it's not unlike being in an abusive relationship. The, the abused becomes the abuser. And I, I think that all of us carry some trauma to some degree um, collectively. You know, maybe you didn't go to a church growing up that, that bashed gay people every week, but someone in your homeroom did. And you got to hear this over and over and over. Um, so even, even if you came from a supportive family, there was a lot of outside interference in your life. Um, and so that creates a, a sense of um, being less than. And so when you're in a position to be more than or feel like you're more than, uh, then I, I think that sometimes we, we take advantage of that. So as, as with all groups, Alex, we, we have to try to find that commonality, the things that we, we can agree on and work on those issues. Mm -hmm. it, it takes everyone pulling the same direction. And, but where do you find commonality in issues where Black Lives Matter protesters are being imprisoned with $1 million bails? Oh, there, there, there is no commonality there. That, that is just, that, that is egregious uh, in, in handling justice. Um, that's why criminal justice reform is so critical in Oklahoma. And you know, I've, I've heard people say that, well, that doesn't impact my family. Well, it sure might tomorrow. Uh, we, we don't know what's coming our way. And the, the, the absurdity of imprisoning more women than any place in the world, that's, that's crazy. We, the, the number of people that we have incarcerated here is so high, um, particularly among minority communities, that, that it's just destroying generation after generation. And um, so, yeah, I, I, that's, to me, that's something that's, that's not a, um, a left or right issue. It's a matter of right and wrong. I, I completely agree. And going back to just the history of the Democratic Party in Oklahoma, I was just looking at the amount of Democrats in Oklahoma when I was born in 96, and we nearly doubled the amount of registered Republicans. That has flipped since. And I was wondering, besides maybe party realignment, why do you think that happened in Oklahoma? Uh, I, I'm sorry, I just can't get over the fact that you were born in 96. <laughs> You feel old. <laughs> no, I've, I've gotten that a lot, so it's all good. <laughs> um, no, uh, Oklahoma had a very, very long history of Democrats um, ruling the Capitol, uh, living in the governor's mansion, both houses um, in, in, in the legislature. And then that started to change. Um, and when it did, it was a radical change. And uh, the Republicans have been in control now for a long time. And 
I, with the number of people that are, are registering to vote, Democrats are, are gaining, by the way, in, in terms of new registrations. Um, and I think the more that the, the president speaks, the more people who are, they may not change their party affiliation, but at least they're going to be open to some different ideas. I mean, we, there's not a day that goes by that I don't hear from someone says, do you have any Biden or Republican for Biden signs that I can put in my yard? Oh, wow. Or, or people say, I've, I've had it. I'm changing my party affiliation to Democrat. Um, we also have a growing number of independents in, in Oklahoma, which um, I, I love that because those are folks who uh, may not ascribe to the ideals of one party or the other, but are open to listening and tend to be more progressive um, than, um, than, than, than folks on the other side uh, would be. So yeah, it, it's cyclical, Alex, uh, and we will, we will, we'll, the pendulum will swing back and it'll be uh, a capital full of Democrats, again, hopefully sooner rather than later but it's still going to take us a little time. Yeah, because I was looking at the election results. You know, the people who voted in this past primaries, Republican, there were 100,000 more Republican voters than Democrat voters. And when you have elections with, you know, Inhofe and Broyles, you have to think, how will that, you know, discrepancy influence the elections? But I guess you kind of answered it right there with saying that people are still on the fence with what's going to happen. Well, yeah, you know, Inhofe is just, He's been such a, a fixture for so long, but I, th I, I have to believe that a lot of folks in Oklahoma are just tired of him. They're tired of his same old, same old, tired of his rhetoric that never moves forward. And <clears throat> pardon me, and here he has a challenger who's bright, who's articulate, who has good ideas, uh, that, that reflect the needs of Oklahomans. Um, and I, I think that, that people are giving her a fair, a fair listen. Similarly, um, if, if, you look, if you look at what happened in the last primary um, in, in central Oklahoma uh, for, for Congress, every Republican that, that set out to challenge uh, Congresswoman Horn, their commercials were nothing but butt-kissing. I mean, that's all it was up to Trump. And yep. if, that, if that's all you've got to run on, then you're, you're pretty transparent. You, you, don't, you, you don't have a foot in reality, um, especially as we're starting to see some of his loyalists uh, start to drift away. Um, and that's, that's why Congresswoman Horn has gotten a lot of flack from some Democrats because she has been conservative in some of her votes, uh, but she is, she is trying to her best, I believe, to vote in the interest of everyone in her district. Um, and that includes, that includes a, a big chunk of Republicans. This is the, the most highly contested uh, congressional race in the country. Lots and lots of dark money are going to go in to fighting her for this position. Um, 
the, the DNC is, has been very helpful to our campaign. And I'm grateful for that because um, the, the resources that are going to be coming from the other side, we haven't seen anything like that in probably ever uh, with, with what they're about to, to launch. Wow. Do you think there's going to be smear campaigns against Broyles? Oh, of course, of course, there, there will be. Um, and, you know, it's, that's just the nature of where politics is now. Uh, it, it, it's really dirty. Um, can, you, can you name a Republican that you like? <laughs> I always like to challenge people on the other side to say, to name someone else. My mom, I love oh, my mom. Uh, I hate talking politics with her, won't do that. Um, uh, and a part of it is, I think, in fun, but part of it is seriousness when I have family members that come to Thanksgiving dinner with NRA hats and, you know, MAGA, MAGA shirts. It's like, yeah, thank you. All. I can't believe we were born in the same house. Um, but yeah, that, that's right now, that's probably the only one that comes to mind, Alex. Yeah. That's, that's very understandable. But now I wanna transition to you and your story. So you were born and raised in Oklahoma and then you went to OU's journalism school and then you moved to New York City. As a, yeah. as a gay man in the 1980s, what was the culture shock, shock like? Um, there, it wasn't. I, I honestly, when, when I left Oklahoma, um, and that was, that was at the height of the oil bust. Um, so it was a pretty desolate landscape here in terms of finding work. Um, I knew one person in New York, a friend that I had gone to school with, uh, and then she moved to New York to go to Columbia for grad school. And she said, why don't you come to New York and stay, stay a couple of weeks and see what you think? Um, and I agreed to go, but not for two weeks. I, when, when I got there, it's, it felt like home right away. And in short order, it became home. Um, I never thought I would leave New York, uh, ever. Uh, my husband had, he grew up in Queens um, and lived there all of his life, except when he was in the service. And for a long time, he had said, you know, let, let's, let's look for something in a warmer climate. Um, I was always saying, yeah, well, maybe later. Uh, but eventually he was, uh, he was pretty convincing and he had been very supportive of my career. And so we started looking in the South and I said, really anywhere but, but Oklahoma. Uh, <laughs> I'm interested in going back to Oklahoma. And Never say never, because I was offered an opportunity to come back to Oklahoma to do LGBT equality work. And I could not say no to that because I saw a great need. And that turned into an incredible opportunity for me to meet so many people, to, uh, to engage with a great diversity of people. Um, and... I, I loved every minute of my time doing that. Um, it, it, it certainly is not over um, because uh, in this position, there are a lot of issues uh, 
uh, affecting immediately our community. And so I still get to deal with those. But the people that, that call and they sometimes, not, not here in the office, but call me personally, sometimes they're looking for uh, an attorney or, or, or a gay-friendly doctor or they want to talk about their their kid who came out as transgender. Um, I, I got a call from a minister in Oklahoma City, and he said, I'm on the phone with a mother from Durant, and uh, her child is transgender, and she doesn't know what to do with it. Can you help her? Um, and those are all, all things that I find great joy in, because People trust me to to help them, and it gives me an opportunity to hopefully touch someone in a positive way. Um, but but some of the things that that we were able to accomplish were were, were terribly exciting. Um, my my debate with Sally Kerr will always be a highlight of my career. It, it was. was it was wonderful. You really, really <laughs> prevailed in that conversation. I was thinking about that the other day. It, uh, it, it I, I, I loved that. Um, and it, it's, it's very similar, honestly, Alex, to the work that I'm doing here. Because at the end of the day, I can lay my head on the pillow and feel good about what I've done. Because it's something that I've done or said some some interaction that I've had has made life a little better for someone else, mm. and you know, to to there's no money, there's no price tag that you could put on that. I've been in the nonprofit sector for most of my career, and that's why I'll probably be able to retire when I'm about 103. <laughs> um, but but it's it's not about the money; uh, it's about an opportunity to do some good and. No matter how small it is, and some days I, I think it's very, very small. But my my goal every day is to make life a little better for someone, and that was true at Cimarron, uh, and it's certainly true here. Mm -hmm. Did you always see yourself working in the nonprofit sector? Because you know, looking at your life, you went from going to a copywriter to the director of planning at the American Institute of Chemical Engineers. It just seems like such a diverse background. How did you even? How's that path work? Everything that I've done has has had a communications component to it. Um, certainly, this job, um, um, the American Institute of Chemical Engineers, actually is a nonprofit, and um, I had a, a great opportunity there because I had a really large staff uh, and and. A, really nice marketing budget. And so we, we got to do a lot of fun things. Um, and it was some superb training for me because it was more of a corporate style of, of, of business um, than I guess your typical nonprofit. Um, and then I went from there to SAGE with the services and advocacy, advocacy oh, yeah. for uh, older gay folks. And Man, that was that was a that was a heady experience getting to talk to some some people who really paved the way. Uh, at, at that time, uh, Edie Windsor was on the board of Sage, and I talked to her just about every day. Um, and then to see what a pioneer she she was and the legacy that she left 
was pretty astounding. Um, I I didn't set out with the notion of of spending my career in nonprofit, um, but but again, it had it's mission driven and uh, as opposed to bottom line driven, and that appeals to me. It uh, uh, work in church, work volunteering with with other nonprofits. That that's I. I, I just, I love the, um, the sector. I love everything about it, except the pay. Um, but uh, it, it's a trade-off and, and it's what I happily, happily do. Mm -hmm. And I guess I, can, I don't consider myself that knowledgeable in LGBT senior rights. I know there's an aging crisis going on and you know, there's not gonna be enough healthcare staff to accommodate the increasing amount of boomers who are 65 and older. What separates the struggles from an LGBT, LGBT senior from a heterosexual senior? Hmm. I, a lot of it depends on where you live. Um, um, if you live in a big city, the, the needs are very different. For one thing, in, in a bigger city, you can have your groceries delivered and your dry cleaning delivered, your laundry picked up, your medications delivered. Um, that's changing now so where that that's more readily available across the country but one of the biggest changes uh or one of the biggest differences is as we age in a community say oklahoma city where we get in our car to drive two blocks to the 7-eleven and and because we don't have great mass transit um and and everyone is tied to their car but think about what happens when you lose the ability to drive. You are completely isolated from your friends. Um, you, you, your neighborhood is probably not your community. There are people that you wave to or you know, people you may have a, a, a good relationship with, but it's not the same as the community that you have enjoyed for, for most of your life. Um, and so, we collectively are going to have to figure out a way to keep older folks engaged uh, and not not allow them to age in isolation. Um, another thing, and this is this is tragic. This is a big difference between gay and 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 straight folks as we age. The stories that I have heard and the the statistics that I've read about older people, particularly gay men, who literally have to go back into the closet in their senior years because they're terrified of being harmed by a home health care person. They have a, a built-in distrust of the medical community because of the way that they have been treated in the past. I've, I've heard people that have gotten rid of every photograph of a former lover, uh, gotten rid of their their porn collection, gotten rid of their uh, pride flags, anything that shows that they are a gay man, uh, because they're, they're they're simply afraid of being hurt or killed by someone in their own home just because they're gay, and that's that's tragic because that takes away it takes something away from you that you worked hard to overcome in the first place, to come out, that was a, a big step of bravery. And then to, to have to take that step back 
for your own self-preservation. That's, that's, that's a big, big difference because straight people don't have to do that. Did you ever hear stories from seniors who got abused by home health aides because they were gay? And like, is there, are there like statistics that show the likelihood of seniors being abused if they're LGBT? Yeah, the, uh, actually the currently the fear is greater than the reality. It's, it's not a, a real commonplace thing. Um, Do you think it's generational kind of like the fact that, you know, elder LGBT people, they grew up during a time where, you know, it was criminalized to be gay while my generation, when we get older, we don't have as much of a distrust with, you know, medical field. Right. But you also have to consider the person that's coming into your home. Um, what is that person's background? Do, do they share your values? Do they share your, your ideals? Um, just because you're of similar age does not mean that, that you think similarly. Um, and so it is generational to a point, but um, the, the, we wouldn't see gay people being beaten up in the street. We wouldn't see trans people being killed just because they're a trans person. And, and these are all being done by people of a similar age. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You, know, you don't see a, uh, an old woman walk up and shoot a young gay man. Yeah, yeah. That, that definitely makes sense. On just another note of, of LGBT rights, I saw a video in 2013 of you being interviewed by KOCO. I think it was about um, DOMA. And you said that you and your husband had to go to Connecticut to get married. What was it like being married in one state and almost having it not recognized in your home state? Well, it wasn't recognized. It, was, it wasn't. At that time, we lived in New York. Uh, and we had a, a, a little weekend place in Connecticut. Um, but we were married when we were in Connecticut, but when we crossed back into New York, we weren't married. And certainly when we moved to Oklahoma, we were, <laughs> we were not married. And one of, the, one of the things that I said, and I'm so glad that that prophecy was wrong, it was about that time uh, that, that I said, marriage equality, Oklahoma, but it will be the last state in the union. <laughs> and I'm glad I was wrong on that. Mm -hmm. um, I guess my, my last question would be, I'm going to leave you with this. Are, are you proud to be an Oklahoman? And if so, why? That's a, that's a tough question. I'm, I'm more proud to be the, the man that I am today than, than the place where I live or the place that I was born. Um, I was a proud New Yorker for probably all the wrong reasons, but, but I was. I'm proud of the people in Oklahoma most days. And so in that regard, I guess you could say, yes, I am a proud Oklahoman because d despite the the politics here, there is a kindness in, in, in Oklahoma. Um, and, and so in that regard, yeah, I, I am proud. Um, I'm, I'm proud that people will reach across the fence to help someone. Um, 
and they don't care about party affiliation or religious beliefs. If they see someone in need, there, there tends to be a helpful heart there. And so, um, yeah, I, I think the pride is more in the people uh, than the place. And I guess ultimately that's probably the way it should be. Man, Scott is just one of those people you could talk to all day. And what a life story. Hopefully you were able to find a takeaway from his story. But now I want to hand some questions off to you. Do you think it's important to vote even when you're, if you're in a state where your political beliefs may not be in the majority? And what was something we mentioned in our conversation that you didn't know? We'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments below. Feel free to share this podcast on social media and tag us at The Gailey. Once again, I'm Robin. And I'm Alex. And you just listened to The Gailey Podcast.